0: This is Viterbi Voices, your chance to hear stories about research, classes, student life, and more.
1: Directly from our students, faculty, and other members of our engineering community. All right here at the USC Viterbi School of Engineering.
0: Welcome back to Viterbi Voices. My name is Paul Desma, Director of Undergraduate Admission here at the USC Viterbi School of Engineering.
1: And my name is Audrey Roberts. I'm a senior studying mechanical engineering here at USC.
0: Well, it's late December. And if you're listening to this, it's probably because you've got incredibly bored of your family, uh, you're, you're, you're out of school, you're, you're somewhere in the middle of your winter break, I hope, or at least the break just got started. I know my daughter's break from school just got started, so she's off school for the next two weeks, so I'm about to go incredibly crazy. Um, but uh, thanks for joining us uh, in this little winter version. Happy holidays to everybody. Hope you're enjoying uh, all of the, your celebrations, however special they can be in this really odd quarantine time. Um, this episode is the third in our special little mini-series that, of episodes that we syndicated and borrowed from our sister podcast, Escape Velocity, from the USC Viterbi School of Engineering, a series that's hosted by Daniel Drahora and Vice Dean Brandy Jones, all about conversations with Black students and faculty. And this episode, this third and final episode, is all about students in engineering, Black students in engineering. Audrey, you want to tell them a little bit about our, our, uh, the featured guests here?
1: Yeah, so as Paul said, this episode is about the Black uh, Engineering Student Experience, um, and it's a conversation with uh, Cheyenne Gaima, um, who is pursuing a Bachelor of Science in uh, Computer Science and Business Administration, um, and she's also the president of the National Society of Black Engineers, or NSBE, at USC, and then um, it's also a conversation with Emmanuel Johnson, who is a um, a PhD candidate here at USC in computer science. Um, and he's also a Fulbright scholar.
0: Awesome. Uh, of course I, you know, I, I don't know the PhD student, but I know Shan, you know, Shan, right. I mean, like Mm -hmm. she is one of the coolest people you'd ever meet. I mean, it's one of those people where I kind of hope she, she meets everybody, uh, because she's just so awesome. I remember meeting her coming out of high school, uh, and coming in here. I'm like, she's got, she's got to be here. And I'm so glad that she's been with us this whole time.
1: Yeah. Shan's awesome. Um, I'm working on uh, some entrepreneurship things with her right now, so that's been oh, fun. Oh,
0: really? Cool, yeah. cool. <laughs> we can't wait to hear about that. It sounds like it's a little top secret right now. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to press you. Too we're, much. We're Anything getting, you can tell us?
1: <laughs> we're just getting started. It's Dominique okay. Cheyenne and I. <laughs>
0: Dominique Cheyenne, and you. Oh my gosh, this is an unbeatable team. Are you guys entering <laughs> a competition?
1: Yes, we are. We've entered the Min Family Challenge. So
0: sweet men family challenge. you got a BME student, a CS student and a mechanical engineering student. Oh my gosh. This and an all female team. Yep. (laughs) Sweet. This is going to be awesome. I can't, well, I think you just, I think you just pegged a future episode for everybody. We're going to, we're going to have to get the three of you on.
1: (laughs) Hopefully for for next semester, look out for that one. But for today, this is um, an incredible conversation with Cheyenne and Emmanuel um, about their experience. um, And also I think, The impetus for this series was um, in large part um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and all of its momentum over the summer um, and kind of a conversation about that in relation to um, engineering academia students at USC. So um, I think this is a is a good um, episode to listen to. Um, in response to that. And for, for those of you who have, who have listened to these three episodes with us, uh, thank you. I, I know I've learned a lot and I, and I hope everyone else has as well.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So big thanks to the marketing communications team at the USC Viterbi School of Engineering. Thank you to Daniel who lent these episodes to us. Thank you to Adam Smith. Uh, thank you to Vice Team Brandy Jones for leading these conversations. Thank you to Michael Chung, the whole head of the operation over there. Really appreciate their help and support in, in getting these episodes out to our audience. Uh, and of course, uh, if you haven't subscribed to Escape Velocity, you can find them on all your major podcasting uh, platforms. They don't they don't come up with episodes as free, as we do, uh, but as you can tell, they, they they put a little more effort into theirs. Uh, we, we like to keep the raw conversations going. They're going for more of that produced sound, and I think there's 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 value to both, right, Audrey? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's value to both, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's what I that's what I told myself when I listened to these, But uh, <laughs> they
0: sound different, right? <laughs> they do
1: sound a bit different. You, you your ears might feel uh, a little refreshed when you're when you're yeah. listening to these, but uh, yeah, so- they're I'm- awesome stuff. Great
0: work. Uh, I'm sorry. I missed that part.
1: Oh, I was just saying great work to to everyone involved.
0: Yeah, they do great, great work. Uh, Before I let you go, I want to make one quick note as before we wrap up 2020. Um, Number one, for those of you that are still, you know, working on those applications for first year applications, remember that the final application deadline is January 15th. And so we're going to, we're going to close out this podcast year with this episode, right? This is our last one, Audrey. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So this is our last one. We'll be back sometime mid-January-ish. I don't don't want to put a date on it, but we'll be back sometime in January?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. So we'll be back sometime in January. In that meantime, uh, of course, go back and check out older episodes. Go check out Escape Velocity. Um, But uh, work on your application January 15th. Check out viterbiadmission.usc.edu for more information and updates that may come out between now and then. Um, If you're a transfer student, uh, this is probably the time that you want to start kind of collecting your documents and getting ready to apply sometime in January. Uh, Transfer student deadline for uh, the application is February 1st. And so more on that information at viterbiadmission.usc.edu slash transfer. So lots of stuff. Uh, I hope that you all have a fantastic rest of your holiday season, a fantastic end of a really weird year. And let's all hope for a much better and brighter 2021. Uh, If you're listening to this in the new year, happy new year. Uh, Of course, we'll say that when we come back too, but uh, this is our last opportunity to to say goodbye. And my last final thanks is to the other person here, Audrey, who's done a phenomenal job uh, at this podcast. I mean, not only have you always done a phenomenal job, but the last couple months where we didn't know what we were doing, you pivoted and you made it work. And you put out more episodes than anyone has ever done before. And and I think that is phenomenal, not to mention the sped up uh, academic schedule you were on. So kudos to you, Audrey. I'm really, really thankful for all the work that you've done. Because if you all don't know it, uh, what you're listening to is the extent of my work here. (laughs) Audrey, and, and she has a group of students that works with, but Audrey's doing the majority of the work here. So thank you, Audrey.
1: Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't thank you, but I want to say the majority, we have a, a big uh, team behind us this year. So it's exciting to, to have some new people on the podcast as well. And definitely, um, uh, I look forward to it. And all of our listeners should look forward to, to more of that in 2021.
0: Cool. Yeah, you're keeping up a pace here. That's going to be hard to match. Because uh, I think <laughs> 2020, I mean, the final stats haven't come in yet, but I'm pretty sure the most listens have ever happened in the year 2020, and then specifically in the last nine months.
1: Well, we've had uh, a, lot of, a lot of episodes out. Uh, a lot of those thanks to our live chat team. But, uh, so hopefully people
2: have enjoyed some of them.
0: We've leveraged our media streams, definitely. All right, y'all. Well, let's get out of the way and give it to our final episode. No two better people to take it over from here.
3: Black Lives Matter to me means no but. Right? Every single Black life matters. Period. Full stop. It means whether or not you have a degree. It means whether or not you speak English. It means whether or not your skin is dark. It means whether or not you talk back. Like, it doesn't matter. Black life, Black Lives Matter to me means we are allowed to take up space.
4: From the USC Viterbi School of Engineering in Los Angeles.
5: This is Escape Velocity. I'm Dr. Brandi Jones.
4: And I'm Daniel Druhora.
5: In late May, the world watched the horrific murder of George Floyd. In the weeks and months that followed, protests filled the streets of Los Angeles and many other cities around the world. In downtown LA, just blocks away from campus, thousands of protesters took to the streets to denounce police brutality and systemic racism. Meanwhile, black students at USC and across the nation called on their academic institutions to do more, not just to increase diversity, but also to promote equity, inclusion, and support for black students on campus, including right here at the Viterbi School of Engineering.
4: For decades, at universities, Black people have been underrepresented in science and engineering fields. We see this represented in the workforce, where only 5% of scientists and engineers are Black. In other words, of the 1.7 million professionals working in engineering occupations here in the U.S., only about 85,000 are Black. Just 5%. It's a startling
5: statistic and makes you wonder... What factors are contributing to the dearth of Black people in engineering? And as a university, training engineers of the future, what can we do to increase representation and foster a more welcoming environment for Black students in STEM?
4: We don't have all the answers, but one way we can learn is by listening to our students and highlighting their voices.
5: Our colleagues, Caitlin Dawson and Avni Shaw spoke to Cheyenne Gaima and Emmanuel Johnson, two engineering students, to talk about what drew them into engineering, how it feels when you're the only Black engineer in the room, and the importance of building community.
4: Finally, we asked, are they optimistic about the future of social justice on campus? Let's find out as we dive into today's episode.
0: Hey, y'all, sorry for the interruption, but I wanted to let you know that we have a number of opportunities to do it and it's happening all summer long, but get your registration in now at viterbi.link slash visit. Hope to see you soon.
6: My name is Emmanuel Johnson. I am a fifth year PhD student in the computer science department advised by Jonathan Gratch. And my work looks at using virtual agents as a tool for teaching negotiation.
7: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
6: I was born in Liberia, came here when I was about eight. I grew up in New Jersey, primarily in Trenton, and spent a year in Willamboro and then graduated from New Brunswick High School. And where I grew up, I think it was a pretty diverse community. Neither one of my parents went to school. And so there was a push for me to do well in school, but there wasn't really a vision of where the future was. I think my my parents wanted me to be something in life, but I don't think either sort of pushed me towards anything. And I, and when I think about it, my mom really supported a lot of what I wanted to do. And I never really saw myself as an engineer. I always sort of bounced around. In middle school, elementary, I was always a kid that was selling stuff in school. So I sold cookies, I sold candies, starburst, you name it. You know, you go to Sam's Club, get the big uh, package and sell a little one. Um, But I also had this interest in computers, because at home, I always have games on my on my computer. So I used to have these different emulators that let me run different systems. So I had a Nintendo 64 on my computer, uh, Game Boy, so on and so forth. So I was always doing stuff, but I never really looked at computers as a career path. It was just something I found interesting. It wasn't until later on in high school, when I took a programming class and a teacher was like, well, This might be something you want to consider. I think you're good at it. That I truly began to consider computer science. And so I think that's that really influenced me. So although I come, I'm a first generation student, I come from a low income background, I think my family and my, my parents did a good job of just providing the environment for me to just try different things.
2: Did you see much diversity in your teachers at school and how did this impact you? Like, did you feel that you were supported through school um, in your interest in engineering and computer science?
6: I think at different stages in my career, uh, academic career, I saw different levels of diversity, I think. In elementary, I don't remember having many teachers that looked like me. In middle school, around eighth grade, I can remember I had a Black teacher. But I think towards the towards the end of high school, I saw more diversity. And then I went to a historically black college. So in undergrad, from the president down to faculty and even in general, I saw folks that looked like me in all ranks. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting experience. And I, I do think it, it really shaped how I see myself and and, and what I chose to pursue because In those early days, I didn't really see that as a field for me because I didn't really see too many people like myself. I didn't know too many black computer scientists. But as I got more exposure, especially in later parts of high school, at New Brunswick, there was a community and a history of African American excellence and folks who graduated from high school and went off to do different things. Our uh, math teacher would would talk about which students did well in SAT and their scores. It's like, man, these these are legends here, you know? And, And so I think. Those experiences coupled together really sort of opened my eye to what's possible. And then being an undergrad, I was around professors that looked like me, that cared about me, and, and, and that saw my potential. And, and, and they really did push me to, to, want to not only excel in engineering, but I saw it more than just a job. It, it was something that I could be, right? It's not just that, I could graduate and get a job at Microsoft and Facebook, which those things are, are good. But it, it, it was a deeper thing where I now view myself as an engineer. So you've talked a little bit about your research at the beginning, which sounds
2: super interesting, but I'm also interested in knowing like what actually motivated you to conduct this research and who you think it could help.
6: One of the things I, I started to realize was that as I've transitioned from, you know, Trenton, New Jersey to AMT and now to USC, There's sort of a progression. You see a lot more wealth around you. You see a lot more resource and access. And it started me thinking, like, "Huh, I wonder what would happen if these resources that I'm seeing now were also provided to students in a similar situation as I was growing up." And so, right around that time, I, I was spending summers at Carnegie Mellon, and I became aware of a field called intelligent tutoring system, and this goal of building machines that can essentially act as automated tutors for people and I thought, man, that would be really cool if, you know, in these schools that don't have enough resources, imagine if you could just supplement that with an AI system, right, the AI system could understand what the students was going through their emotion, it could also understand their, the difficulty they're having with different problems, and then help direct them to a, a solution.
7: Linking to that, you know, that interest in social justice and education, how people think, you know, when we conceived of this podcast, a lot of the impetus was the protests that have been going on and the Black Lives Matter movement gaining more and more momentum. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to just what it means to you
6: personally and
7: also in the context of your work as an engineer.
6: You know, I think... When I think about the words Black Lives Matter, I think there's a sort of a, a positive and a negative connotation to it at the same time. Positive is that when you, it's acknowledging something so critical that here you have a, this group that has been marginalized for so long and all we're trying to say is that they matter as well. But what's also really interesting is that you have to say that as sort of a social justice thing, right? It's not saying that, hey, black lives matter more or it's not saying that we should stop doing these things to black lives. It's a very basic thing. It says black lives matter. And and the fact that we even have to say that sort of highlights a, a, a larger problem.
2: So in the world of academia then specifically, um, in what ways do you think we're feeling or in what ways do you think we're doing well? Can you tell us a little bit about your perception of that as a PhD
6: student? I think that the good thing that I see coming from academia in terms of diversity, I think one, universities are becoming more aware and putting resources in place Um, over my six or so some odd years here at USC, I've seen we've hired more diverse faculty. I've seen more resources dedicated to grad students as well as undergrads from underrepresented groups. We had Dr. Jones come on as Dean of Diversity. And I think across the nation, you're seeing universities uh, beginning to tackle that question of diversity and what does it mean and what does it look like? And so I'm seeing the impact as well as the drive in and trying to diversify academia. Now, those are the things I think we're doing good. What I think we need to improve on is a few things. One, I think we've created diversity. Diversity has become a very broad term that encompasses anything that's different. And I think we have to be very careful because every group experiences different things. Every group has certain biases. And so there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for everybody. The other thing we can do is listen to the students as well as the faculty on your campus and, and, and provide the resources for them to be successful. I think there's a difference between diversity and equity, and, and there's been quite a lot of conversations around that. And so it's not just about getting a number of us in this space, but it's, it's giving us the tools so that we can be equal contributors. And so, I think many universities already have a mission statement, right? And so, the mission statement is what you're trying to do or, or your objective. And I think that what we should begin to see is okay. Let's look at the standard we we set for ourselves. If we say we're an institution that produces the most business leaders, or we we are we produce the greatest engineers, okay. Fair. How do we do that in different populations? Because I think. Oftentimes, it becomes an entirely different conversation when you talk about diversity. If we're looking at black students, for example, okay, well, if this is the benchmark for what it takes to be a leader in academia, and this is where our black students are coming in, how do we bridge that gap? And that should be the conversation the university has, not trying to, and, and I think, and not just simply trying to get them here. And I think because when you're able to develop that talent, it truly speaks to the ability of the university and it truly speaks to the mission of the university.
0: Hey, everyone, this is Paul. Sorry for the interruption, but I wanted to let you know about a new feature we just unlocked. It's about sending us questions or comments via text. If you go to your podcast player, check the show notes. There's a link there that says send us a question or comment. It may be on our next episode. So go in there. Send us a little quick text message. Let us know what your questions are. Let us know what your comments are. We'd love to hear from you. So we can't wait to see it. Now, back to the episode.
7: How has it colored your experience, especially when thinking back to being at an HBC undergrad experience and then kind of coming here? Does it shape your experience? Is it something that you kind of interact with on a daily basis? Does it enter your, you know, like
6: how yeah. does it? Um, I've been to a few international conferences where it, I could count on one hand a number of folks that look like me. And so when you've been in this space for, so many years, it in some sense, it becomes normalized where I'm a bit more shocked when I walk into a room and I see another Black person because it's like, oh, you know, where'd you come from? And, and, and But I think we do need to do a better job. I don't think since I've been here, we've hired a Black faculty in computer science. I'm not sure if USC has ever had a Black faculty in computer science, but I think that, that that's something I would like to see change. And yeah, because I think thinking about how it shapes my experience, I think the biggest thing is, is sort of this conflict, right? Because I've seen so, all of the brilliant and mind-boggling thing that USC has done over the years from the way we've addressed a bunch of different issues. You know, we I've seen leadership change because of uh, conduct in different departments. I've seen millions of dollars being poured in a different initiative. And so... The fact that all of this has happened, our commitment to diversity, but yet I haven't seen a black faculty sort of makes me question some things like, okay, well, what is our priority here? Because if if we're talking about diversity, but in six years, I haven't seen that change, then I think there's still work that we can do. But what what I do enjoy about USC and, and being, in this space is that the university has listened to our concerns since I've been here as a student and things have changed. So I'm hopeful that in the next few years or so, we can see more black faculty as well as black researchers here at USC in all departments.
7: There have been notes about researchers in different positions of different minority groups and feeling that there's a burden upon them to do more than research, to devote time to being on diversity committees and um, being part of diversity initiatives. And it's extra work on top of what you're already doing. It's often uncompensated and it, it can often also be taken for granted in terms of like, you're always going to have to take a stance on something that maybe you don't want to have to take a stance on. So just wondering, do you see this happening around you? And how could this be better addressed?
6: So I think what was coming to light with what we see with Black Lives Matter and and these global protests is people are listening, people are willing to be more introspective. So I think that's one thing, figuring out, okay, am I part of this problem, and how can I adjust my approach so that it's more communal to different groups? The other piece is you don't want folks to lead these initiatives when they're not necessarily from that group, but you don't have to lead an initiative to still be able to support it because there are key things that these students may need help with. For example, if the case is if we find that, you know, students are coming to faculty of color because they need to know how to write papers. Well, if you're good at writing papers, you can still do a workshop for them. It doesn't have to be based on something related to their identity. Right. It's just you providing your your resource. And the other piece is that if, for example, if I'm a white male professor, I'm part of a population that these students are going to interact with for the rest of their lives. And I, I bring a very unique perspective that they may not know about. And so in many ways, I can be an ally by teaching them some of the skills that got me to where I am. Because the fact that you have a lack of representation in these spaces means that not a lot of people who look like us oftentimes have that years of wealth, of of wisdom passed down to them. And they don't have, they may or may not have that network to pull on. Some do, and, and they go off and do amazing things, but some don't. And so, being able to tap into your resources and say, okay, maybe if I'm the if I'm an expert in ACI and I know these students are interested in ACI or they're having issues in these classes, maybe I make some additional resources available to them. And I think to get to that point, you have to speak with your Black colleagues or colleagues from underrepresented groups and get their insight and be more of a support for the ideas and initiative they have going on rather than either pulling back and not getting involved or being the one who's leading the initiative.
2: What is one thing that you think we could be doing in academia to make it a more welcoming space for black students?
6: I would say try your best to get to know each student individually and then design solution around the population that you have. Because the demographics for black students are changing and there's this tendency to bunch everyone into the same category. There are students who are low income, there's students who are medium income, there's students who are high income. They're all black. They're still all underrepresented in the field because of their uh, racial identity, but they have different needs. And so if universities spend more time understanding their student makeup, it could be, you know, monthly, quarterly, semesterly events to just bring students and talk to them. It could be uh, more formal things. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was a part of a program called the Wabash Provost Scholar. And one of the things we did was institutional assessment. The idea was rather than have faculty come and talk to students, interview students, let's have students talk to students. So we'll be in a room. We don't take any names. We just get the perspective of the student. And so they're more open. They, they don't feel like, oh, I have to be cautious of what I say because I don't want the administration to know it was me. But so I think those type of approaches where you really get the down to the nitty gritty of what the students are saying are approaches to really bring through that voice. And I think it's only then that we can really begin to, one, understand what the problems that need to be addressed at that institution. And then two, really create more equity for black students.
3: My name is Cheyenne Gaima, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and uh, I am a rising senior at uh, USC Viterbi studying computer science and business administration. I am a Cameroonian American, first generation American student who I was originally born in Silver Spring, Maryland. My family is originally from Cameroon and I spent a few years of my life growing up in Cameroon before moving back to the States to start school. After my move to Maryland, I grew up there for the
7: rest of my life before moving to Los Angeles. Did you always know you wanted to get into engineering and specifically computer science?
3: Actually, no. So it kind of fell in my lap. One of those things God kind of placed before me and I just ran with it. So I got introduced to computer science in the 10th grade Um, going into my junior year the summer before that when I did a program called Girls Who Code I it was kind of just my way of my my mom said either you're working or you know you're you're working and so I was like I need to do something I need to find a gig for this summer so I literally just searched opportunities for high school students or something like that on Google and Girls Who Code came up. I was like, it's seven weeks. I could learn something new. Uh, Let's do it. So I signed up for the program and lo and behold, it changed my life. And I, I'm so grateful to have, you know, had the chance to participate in that program. And it just goes to show like this is definitely not like and when I say this, I mean, computer science is not something that you have to be born to do or know from the start that, you know, this is your calling. Right. It's for anyone and it's for everyone. And it can happen at any point. And it happened for me fairly late, I guess, but nonetheless.
2: When you were at school, did you see much diversity in your teachers um, and how did this impact you? Did you feel supported in your pursuit of STEM?
3: I would say in the beginning, yes. Beginning being high school. So when I first got introduced to computer science, going to an NCC school in Montgomery County, right, the teachers were fairly diverse. And my computer science teacher throughout 11th and 12th grade was a Black man and he was fairly supportive, you know, of our pursuits. But coming to college, right, and getting this huge culture shock of, you know, more times than not being the only Black person in any of my computer science classes, more times than not being the only Black person or the only girl in some of my uh, peer groups, it was a rude awakening. So, In Girls Who Code, you know, they'd always told us, you know, it's not always going to be like this. You won't always be in a room of 20 girls coding. And we're like, yeah, whatever. Right. And, you know, in my high school, my professor was telling or my teacher was telling us, it's not always going to be like this. You know, it's not always going to be a room this diverse. We're like, yeah, whatever. And I get to college and I'm like, this is what they're talking about. (laughs) This is exactly what they were talking about. And it honestly was just a rude awakening to just experience it firsthand than working in industry right where it's even worse and I can't say it hasn't been discouraging but you know there's just a part of you that makes that just really wants to be there you know be that be that person in the room.
7: I just wondered what your experience in Girls Who Code kind of brought to USC and being able to face that sense of like I'm in a minority here but I really want to be in this room and I have the confidence to be in this room. You know, what are some of the lessons that you learned there or or things that you were able to apply? I think that Girls Who Code
3: and specifically Reshma's whole mantra is brave, not perfect, right? Like be brave enough to be brave and know that you're not going to always get it right all the time, right? And if you do mess up, it's not because you're inherently Um, someone who messes up right it's not because of your blackness that you messed up it's not because you're the only one here and you were bound to mess up that you messed up you messed up because it's hard right you failed because it's tough your code is crashing because code crashes and I think that learning that early early on was just so so I don't even just so transformative right knowing and Imposter syndrome will do that to you, right? The first thing you think when you get something wrong or when you fail a test or you are too scared to raise your hand is, well, yeah, you you probably will get it wrong, right? And and kind of learning that that isn't the first thing that you should think, you know, kind of take a step back and examine things from a larger perspective. And then I think that secondly, another big thing that it taught me that I learned at Girls Who Code that I still apply here is use your resources and use your community, right? It's perfectly okay to ask for help when you are struggling, you know, very literally in your code and, you know, in the grander scheme of things, if you're struggling personally, if you're struggling academically, don't see that as a weakness, right? I think that when you're, when you are the only or one of few people in a space, it's very easy to feel like, I have to be strong and I have to represent and I can't, you know, let them think that I'm not worthy. And that leads to a lot of internalization of all of the struggle that you're actually enduring and it's damaging. And I think that, you know, it's an ongoing struggle, but learning to actively remind myself like I'm a human being that's heavy already, but like I'm a human being and I'm like, it's okay for me to rely on other
2: people and to ask for help. So then going forward a bit in time, why did you come to USC then? I came to
3: USC because I think that I really, so I think that it's worth noting that my biggest factor in choosing college was would I be able to afford it? period. And once I kind of narrowed it down to that in the sense that I ended up getting a scholarship from USC and I visited campus and that was kind of the selling point for me was the atmosphere and how immediately um, how immediately welcome I felt in all of the spaces that I was visiting and how how easily I could kind of just talk to people and feel at home. That's what sold it for me initially. And I guess a little bit more specifically and related to Viterbi, I just had a really great you know I'm just so glad that I made it out to campus. And I had a really great experience meeting a lot of the black students in Viterbi and just kind of hearing about some of their experiences, hearing about the community that they built among themselves. And that was kind of just USC and Viterbi was a place that I I felt like I could see myself getting the support that I
7: needed. So part of this support maybe might connect a little bit to your role in NSBE. And we just wanted to know a little bit more about your involvement with the group and what inspired you to get, you know, more involved in a leadership role, what you feel is really significant and important about the group and the work that you guys do.
3: Well, okay, so I'll start with my involvement in NSBE. So I've been involved since second semester of my freshman year, and I've been a leader for uh, now three of those four years. And it's honestly been great. It's honestly been the best part of my college experience thus far. NSBE is such a vital space where you can enter the room and not feel like the other like enter the room and not have to put any guards up not have to worry about you know how your words might be misconstrued you know any of it it's a room where you know there are people who understand there are people who are willing to listen there are people that you can just fairly easily get along with and learn from and I think that everybody no matter what you know, whatever it is that you're identifying with, everybody needs their own version of Nesby, right? But especially, especially students who need a Nesby, right? Students who need a space where they don't feel like they're alone. So that's why I feel like it's important. And I think that the the click for me to decide to then wanna step up and be a leader, once I found that space and felt very comfortable, was when we went to our first national convention, which is just pretty much large convention. All the different chapters, local, uh, executive, professional, and collegiate, meet at a large venue, and you know their career fairs, workshops, the works. And it was the first time—I kid you not—the first time I was in a room with so many Black professionals. And I was just so astonished. I was like, this is real, right? Like, I'm not dreaming this and I don't have to dream this. Like, I'm literally seeing it. And that's when it clicked for me. I was like, the only way that people are going to feel empowered and feel like they can be, they can do whatever it is that they want to do is if they see people like them doing it, right? And that was why Girls Who Could was so huge for me, being in a room and learning from 20 girls. That's why Nesby is so impactful for me, being in a room of 70 Black engineers who, who are going through the struggle and doing it, right? So it's like, if I want to inspire somebody to be a leader, you know, I have to put myself out there.
7: We're gonna go more to looking at academia and how academia is doing, kind of like the academia report card in terms of diversity, equity and inclusion. Where do you think it's doing a good job? Where do you think it's failing? And, you know, feel free to speak broadly about, you know, colleges and schools in general and specifically Mm -hmm. about your experiences of Viterbi as well.
3: Things that are promising right now, things that I, I think are going great in academia are one, The promotion right, for spaces like Nesb and CED at Viterbi, the visibility that they already do have, spaces like that already do have. And a lot of that is thanks to the students and the staff and faculty that put a lot of time and energy into making those spaces visible. But on the other hand, when those spaces are so limited to the few students that are there, it doesn't feel like much progress. So I think that the probably just the biggest thing that I would like to see going forward I guess generally is just hire more black faculty, you know, enroll more black students. I think that, you know, it's it's really interesting being you know, having this intersectional identity within engineering, right? Because there are times when you want to celebrate how much progress has been made, you know, on the gender parity front and, you know, the amazing announcement that USC had of, you know, a class with gender parity recently. But then it's like, but we're still lacking, right? Where are the Black girls, you know, that that want to study engineering? And why is there not a bit as, as large of an effort to bring them in as there are to bring women in? Why is there not as large of an effort to recruit BIPOC students as there are to recruit women, right? Or as there is to recruit women? And I just think that bigger efforts have to be made there's no reason like I, sh- I I don't know there's no reason I should walk into the room and be the only one like it's it's so and then there's just moments where you're like does anybody else like this is so awkward does anybody else notice and you're like they have to notice but it's like so why isn't anybody saying it I don't know I
7: more has to be done in my opinion if you could change one thing to make higher ed a more welcoming space for Black students, what would it be? Obviously, there would be a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> to really prioritize um, one major thing that you think would would make a huge difference.
3: Like you said, there's a lot, but I'm going to speak to again my experience. Something very simple, very easily implementable. One change that I think that could be made immediately, almost anywhere, is have professors acknowledge what a student might be going through. And I mean that in terms of, so one of my best experiences at engineering at USC was with a professor who took the time to learn my name, learn my goals for the course, um, learn my goals for my degree pursuit um, and my career goals and actually be engaged in that journey with me. And I know that that's hard with, you know, larger uh, classroom bases, but this was a professor that had over 200 students and he made the effort and this professor made it very clear that he was on my side. Right. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be the only one advocating for myself. And I think that that's so important so important to do with all students right like we're all young I don't want to say all a lot of us are young adults you know a lot of us are in this very strange transitional phase and you know that kind of mentorship and that kind of allyship truly is so essential but especially especially for students who may not already have that support especially for students who need it most right
2: so what do you plan to do after graduation do you know yet
3: I'm an engineer and I want to build and I want to create products and technologies that actually truly benefit communities, right? And higher than that, I want to lead teams and I want to lead people who make such large-scale efforts and people who have large-scale dreams and really want to see change. I want to be somebody who can like give my all to those efforts.
2: Do you see yourself ever going back to Cameroon?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that ultimately it's weird because I've lived in the States for most of my life, but I, I feel so much connection and so much, so many more ties to Cameroon. And I just know that if there's anything or anyone or anywhere with potential, it's there. And I wanted—I just wanna pour so much of myself to
2: my people. So with the current momentum of Black Lives Matter movement, I'm wondering if you're optimistic about the future. Do you feel like we're really gonna make a change this time or is it just gonna be more talk and not enough?
3: <laughs> so <laughs> it's actually really interesting. Um, they're asking this question because I had this conversation with my friend just a few days ago. Um, how, in the early part of this whole reckoning, right, like when quarantine probably just started, and we learned of like the tragic news of Mont Arbery and um, just like kind of in the beginning, when things were shifting, I, I was having conversations with my friends. I was having, I had a conversation, um, a, a professor at USC had a conversation with some students at Nesby, and I remember just asking a lot of people and I asked him, I was like, isn't a revolution inevitable at this point, like it's coming. I was like, there's no way there, this has to be it. And you know i got a lot of varying answers and you know a lot of well it depends right but i feel like this is it you know and forgive me if that's too optimistic but i've i've sensed that a lot from a lot of people a lot of people are very hopeful and i think that just the weight of it all of it all right everything that's going on and all of the all of the realization that's happening i think that For this not to be the time would be such a waste, to put it pretty plainly. But considering that all of this is happening, I think that change is coming and I'm really hopeful. And I'm, man, I'm so lucky. I just feel so lucky to be a part of this change and to be um, a young adult in this time. It's inspiring.